Anybody notice who wrote that hymn? Fanny Crosby, right? So she says, His smile will be the first to welcome me. She will know him by the prints of the nails in his hand. We will know him as well. But for her, it will be the first thing that she sees because she is blind and she was blind. And um, So it's a special hymn that... Um, that is an encouragement to us, something to look forward to when we see our Savior. Would you turn your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 1 this evening? We want to continue our study in this book for, I think we're just taking seven uh, times to look at this, this short book. And uh, so we want to continue our study. And last time we looked at an overview of the book and wanted to see what the main theme was and, and um, wanted to see some introductory material and tonight we want to look at these, uh, the rest of chapter 1. Several weeks ago we looked at Psalm 44 on a Sunday evening and we saw how believers should respond to mysterious suffering. And what, what uh, Mike Jewell was talking about this morning went very much in line with, with that message that I preached on Psalm 44. That, that um, myst- mysterious suffering will often take place in the life of believer. That is mysterious. I say that. I mean, uh, suffering that's not directly connected to a sin. So, like for Mike, he was saying for him, it was seeing Sidhu start to walk away from God. It wasn't directly tied to Mike Jewell's sin, right? But he was starting to feel the pressure of, of someone actually turning away from God. I, I gave the illustration of, you know, if I robbed a bank, and I had to serve a jail sentence or a prison sentence, that would be actually just suffering. I, I would deserve that sort of suffering. But, but mysterious suffering is suffering for when I'm doing good, when I'm doing what is right. And that's the kind of suffering that the people of Israel found themselves in in Psalm 44. And there were three ways that they dealt with it. First, they remembered the, the, the distant past. They remembered God's faithfulness in the distant past. They remembered how they had heard about their forefathers and, and many other people in Israel who had, who had seen God's faithfulness and how God had worked in and through them. And then the second way they responded to mysterious suffering was they remembered how God was faithful to them in their own lives, how God had, had spared them in certain situations and shown Himself strong in their lives. And then, then the middle of the, the uh, psalm talks about this mysterious suffering and, and why is it this way? And then at the very end, just like this morning with Psalm 89, at the very end, the psalmist says the third way that we deal with mysterious suffering is, remember what the last verse of Psalm 89 was? Blessed be the name of the Lord forever and ever. Amen and amen. Remember? So the last part of Psalm 44 is very similar. It is, I'm going to trust in the Lord no matter what. That, that even though I am suffering in this way, in a way that I don't understand, I'm going to remember what, how God was faithful in the past, the distant past, how God was faithful in my recent past, and I'm going to just trust Him, even when it feels like He is far away. It's very easy for us to get dis- distressed in the middle of persecution and suffering, but God wants us to raise our view of our own suffering and see that God is doing something bigger in our suffering. That He is preparing us, as we're going to see tonight, to be counted worthy of His kingdom. 
and he's using it as evidence of his final vindication of the righteous of his righteous ones. We'll see how that plays out here in this text. Let me read uh, the passage that we're going to study this evening, and that begins in verse three and goes to the end of the chapter. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse three. This is the word of God. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed, to this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you and Him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was impressed with the Thessalonians' growing faith. And so tonight in this passage we're going to see that growing faith is something to talk about. Verse 3 is the beginning of one of Paul's um, long sentences in the Greek language. And and this one goes all the way through verse 10. So from verse 3 to verse 10, in the Greek, it is one sentence. And in the first part of this sentence, he thanks God for their perseverance. And in the second part of this sentence that ends in verse 10, he talks about coming judgment. And so if you look at verse 3, you'll see the main verb of the sentence. And then all of this is kind of explaining. He just kind of builds on what he's saying. The main verb is... We ought always to give thanks to God for you. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. And then he goes on to say why. And then in verses 11 through 12, so after he finishes his sentence in verse 10, he tells them what he prays for. He prays specifically for them. So if we think about it this way, that verses 3 through 10 are thanksgiving to God for His grace, for what He's doing in their life, the growing faith. Then verses 11 and 12 is prayer to God for continued growth. So, verse 3. Growing faith is something for which we should thank God. Growing faith is something for which we should thank God. Notice the content of Paul's thanksgiving. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Paul was praising God 
for their growing faith. Even in, we're going to find out, the midst of their persecution. In the midst of the persecution, we'll talk about that later, but notice the obligation that Paul feels he has. We ought always, remember he's, he's saying that Silvanus and Timothy are with him, or Silas and Timothy are with him, although Paul's the one that's doing the writing, Silas and Timothy agree with him. They give thanks to God for them as well. And they ought always to give thanks to God. Do you notice that obligation that Paul feels to give thanks to God for their growing faith? It's not the, in a negative sense like, oh, we're forced to give thanks for God, to God for you. But rather, our proper response to what God has done in you is to praise Him for His mercy and grace. And we can't help but do that. It is our spiritual obligation. And the reason for their obligation to give thanks to God is that it's only fitting. Notice the second line there. Brethren, as is only fitting. Why? Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Christians, we have a spiritual obligation to thank God when He accomplishes positive acts of righteousness in the lives of other believers. For Paul, this is something that he prayed for. Specifically for these Thessalonians. Turn back to chapter, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Remember I mentioned last week that this second letter to the Thessalonians was written probably only three months after the first one. And notice what he prays to God for them regarding. Verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 3.11 Now may our God and Father Himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and, and abound in love for one another. Okay, so notice he prays for their love that, that it would abound. And for all people, just as we also do for you. Verse 13, So that He may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. So Paul prays for their love and for their faith. And apparently they took this prayer to heart. They had seen that Paul had written down what he was going to pray for. And now they take it to heart because now Paul gives thanksgiving for their continued and their growing faith. One side note here is and what you'll notice in Paul's letters is that he never thanks people directly. Did you ever notice that? He doesn't say, thank you Luke for your ministry to me. Thank you Mark. Things like that. Instead he says, I thank God for you. That's what he does here with the Thessalonians. And uh, so perhaps that shapes the way that we talk to other people about how God is working in them. Sometimes we like to, to direct the praise at the person, but what Paul does is he says, I thank God for you. And, uh, and so really the praise to the person is actually indirect. It's really ultimately praise to God. So um, here Paul feels obligated to give thanks for them because of this increasing faith. When Paul hears of their growing faith, he doesn't stop at thanking God. Notice verse 4. Growing faith is something for which we should tell other believers. Growing faith is something for which we should tell other believers. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. The thing that Paul talks about when he talks about a church is their faith. is the faith of the believers that are at the church. 
that are a part of the church. When was the last time that you described our church to someone else in terms of our faith? We tend to talk about churches based on things like the size of the building or the size of the congregation or the events that are taking place. But when Paul talks about a church, he talks about their faith. He talks about them in terms of their faith to God. And what does faith, growing faith look like? Well, in verses 3 and 4, we see at least two ways that the growing faith is expressed. First, look at the, the middle of verse 3. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. So first, there is a love. And then secondly, verse 4, there is a perseverance. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. So, growing faith grows stronger in love and it perseveres in the middle of trials or persecutions, doesn't it? Would you turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4? I, I was going, going to just read this and I often give reference to this passage, but I think it would be helpful for us to just look at it. Because sometimes... When I just read a passage, it's easy for us to just kind of let it wash over us and, and not really uh, take, take root into our minds. And sometimes it's more helpful when we're actually looking at it. So let's just turn to 1 John 4, verses 20 and 21. We're talking about love that grows greater for one another. 1 John 4:20 reads, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. I want, to be, I want us to be careful when we look at these verses because we might take this to mean, well, I need to love every single person in the world. Well, Jesus does say that we ought to love our enemies, but that's not what this text is talking about. This text is saying, if you can't love what kind of person then you don't love God. What kind of person? A believer, a brother specifically. Or we could say a brother or sister in Christ. If we can't love that kind of person, then we can't say that we love God. If you think of yourself as a strong Christian, and maybe you get really excited to listen to Christian music or read a spiritual book, but, but you can't be committed to grow... In, inside the context of a group of people who are different than you, then I think your thinking is off-based. The more we've known about our sin, the more that we know that God has forgiven us in Christ, the more that we've experienced the forgiveness of Christ, then we can express that kind of forgiveness, that kind of love to other people. particularly those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what a local church is all about. It's about seeing, experiencing, and showing that love and forgiveness that we have experienced directly from God. It's being able to continue in love in that way with a limited group of people who will not always be our favorite people in life, but with whom we have in common Jesus Christ. Mark Dever said, if you want to know if you're a Christian... Commit yourself to one local church for a long time 
and interact and live, love these kind of people, even with all of their quirks and their differences. You want to know if you're a Christian? Start loving somebody for a long time. Particularly those who call themselves Christians. That's what 1 John 4.20 is talking about. So we want to see a growing faith in our lives. Then we need to be growing in our love for one another. And we also need to be growing, turn back to 2 Thessalonians 1, we also need to be growing in our perseverance. That in the midst of our persecution, that we're standing up under trials. Well, how can we do this? Where does this come from? How can we love like Jesus loved? How can we endure like Jesus endured? Well, verses 5-10 through 10 show us that growing faith is evidence of God's work. Growing faith is evidence of God's work. Paul here begins this next section of his sentence with verses 5 and 6. Those who grow in faith will be vindicated by God. Paul has mentioned their perseverance in verse 4, and now he takes some time to encourage the believers about God's righteous judgment. Notice verse 5. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So notice that first phrase again. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. What is, Paul? What is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment? How do we find this out? Well, if he says this is, we need to go back to the previous verse and look what he's talking about. He was talking about perseverance in the midst of persecutions or the midst of suffering. So I would suggest to you that the first word in verse 5, this, is only, it can only be referring to one of two things to the suffering of the believers, which is the last referent that was talked about in the previous verse, or it's talking about the persecution. So Paul would be saying something like this. The persecutions that you endure is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. Or, he's saying, the sufferings that I'm sending your way are a plain indication of God's righteous judgment. But verse 5 doesn't seem to pick up the idea of persecutions. And the reason I think that is because the end of verse 5, look at, look, look at the end of verse 5, for which indeed you are suffering. Paul seems to be continuing to talk about suffering. Think about that with, with me for a minute. The plain indication that God's judgments are right and true is the fact that He allows believers to suffer. The plain indication, the way that we can tell that God's judgments are true and right is because He allows believers to suffer. Turn to 1 Peter 4 and I'll try to show this to you through the writings of one of Paul's close friends. 1 Peter chapter 4. We wouldn't think that our suffering is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, but that's what the text says in 2 Thessalonians. So look at 1 Peter 4:15. Verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evil evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Okay, that would be just suffering. What Peter's saying is when you suffer, make sure it's unjustly. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed but it's to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, 
what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. So, here I think Peter's picking up on the same point. Those who suffer will be vindicated. Those who bring about the suffering, the afflictors, will be afflicted by God. Verse 17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. Everyone has to receive judgment in some way. Okay, We can put our judgment in quotations because it's not nearly the type of judgment that the unbeliever will receive. But the judgment that we receive in a lesser way is actually the suffering that we have to bear on this earth. Look at verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exaltation. You see what Peter's doing there? Jesus had to suffer and yet He was exalted. And so when you receive unjust suffering, mysterious suffering, you ought to rejoice because that, that, that suffering is going to lead to something greater. And so for the believer, it is suffering first and then glory. Right? Suffering first in this lifetime and then glory. No suffering in the next. But for the other unbeliever, it is glory first and then what? Eternal suffering, right? Here's the plain indication. You can turn back to Second Thessalonians now. Here's the plain indication that God's judgment is right. Is that we suffer first, and then we receive glory, and they receive their glory, so to speak, now, in a much lesser way than we will receive. And then they suffer for all of eternity. Now, that is not very clear right now because everything's backwards, right? We're the righteous ones and we're suffering. They're the wicked ones and they're receiving the glory. And so now it's all twisted, isn't it? And that's why we have to look to this final day that Paul's going to point to here in the next several verses. Just wait till the judgment time comes. Everything will be turned around. And you'll receive glory for that suffering. And they'll receive judgment for the glory that they took from me. Look at why God's judgment is right at the, in the next phrase in verse 5. Why is God's judgment right? So that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. It's because in the end, Each one will get what he deserves. We don't see that clearly now. But in the end, each one will get what he deserves. And what Paul is saying is that this judgment has already begun. Remember what Peter said? Let judgment begin with the household of God. It's already beginning in anticipation of this full realization in the future so that we can be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. The purpose of this suffering is to test our character. 
will be final because Jesus will come in judgment on those who have afflicted you. And that will lead into the great millennial kingdom in which we will share thrones with the Savior Himself. And so we will be vindicated. Jesus will come with His mighty angels in flaming fire. We know that this will take place at the end of the tribulation. Jesus, yes, will rapture His saints, but at that time He technically doesn't come down to the earth. That's not uh, the, the re- real beginning of His second coming. That's just a precursor to it. His second coming begins when He touches down on the Mount of Olives at the end of the tribulation and takes on all the foes in the battle of Armageddon. And He destroys them. Even though He has all His angels with them and these hosts of heaven, He destroys them with the word of His mouth. And at that time, justice will be carried out. But that justice is not only about punishing the wicked, it's about vindicating the righteous. And this will not be a pretty time for those who are under God's wrath. This will not be a pretty time. Revelation 14.20 says, And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Apparently there will be a river that flows from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea that is as high as the horse's bridle, full of blood because of all of the wicked people who would be destroyed at that time. We may suffer at the hands of people who seem to answer to no one. That is, someone could actually persecute you in such a way that it's completely legal in our country to do so. Particularly, in other countries where Christianity is less favored, that it would be under the legal rights of the people to persecute Christians. And from our perspective, it may look like they answer to no one because the government's not stopping them. But what Paul is saying is they will answer to God. They will answer to the Savior. He will make sure of it. He, God through His Son, deals out retribution to those who who do not obey the Gospel, those who do not know God. Look at the description in verse 8 of these people. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's two ways that Paul describes the wicked. Those who don't know God and those who don't obey the Gospel. When we think about those who don't know God, we think, well, almost everybody knows God. Right? And even Romans 1 says, all men know God. I mean, they have, they have God's laws written on their hearts, Romans 2. And so everyone knows God in that way. But God says that those who are made in His image will be judged for not knowing Him. Not that they don't know who He is, right? The demons even know that, and they shudder, James says. But it is that these people fail to acknowledge his person, they have failed to acknowledge His Son. Listen to John 17. That they may know You, Jesus prays. That they may know You, Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. You want to know God? You need to know Christ. And if you fail to know Christ, then you don't know God. And so that's one way that Paul describes the wicked. The second way is in verse 8, those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see something that is very interesting here, again, that the call of the Gospel is not a nice little option. 
that people can take or leave based on whether they see it as suitable for them or not, like like a gym membership. You know, I I don't know if I can use that or not. I, I think I'll, I'll I'll wait to think about that. No, the gospel is a demand from God, and that's why those who are wicked are those who do not obey God. It is as if the king sends out a royal decree to all of his kingdom that they must obey. And those who reject God, those who reject that decree are rejecting God, aren't they? They don't obey what the king has called them to do, what he has demanded them to do to obey the gospel. Verse 9 tells us that they will pay eternal the penalty of eternal destruction, eternal conscience, conscious torment in the lake of fire. And this eternal torment may not bring some warm fuzzies to us when we think about it, but Paul is not trying to send us into despair. Remember, he's talking to believers and he's actually trying to encourage them. He's saying the, the, the affliction that you're receiving will be taken care of someday. And, and while you feel weak now, God has not forgotten you. And His power is not limited. And He has promised vindication. And so Paul concludes this one long sentence in verse 10 by including you and me. And so we can take hope in what he has to say as well. When He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believe. Paul includes you and me. All who have believed will marvel at Christ and His vindicating of believers. So, this passage talks about the coming of the Lord, the persecutors who will experience divine wrath, and the righteous who will experience eternal glory. And, and now we might want to park on the judgment of the wicked, but that's not the main point. That is simply an ancillary point for Paul's main point, which is to encourage believers in the midst of their suffering. That, that, that they need to understand that the tables will be turned. They're suffering now, but glory is going to come. The, other, the wicked are, are receiving glory now, but suffering is going to come. The tables are going to be turned, so to speak. And then in verses 11 and 12, we see that growing faith is something for which we should continually pray. So Paul is thanking God for their growing faith. And then he prays for their continued growing faith. He says in verse 11, to this end we pray for you always. He prays for their spiritual success. And what does he pray specifically? That our God will count you worthy of your calling. Why was it that God would count us worthy of our calling? Do you remember? This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment that He will count you worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are, what? Verse 5, suffering. God counts us worthy of His kingdom because of our suffering. Don't fall into despair because of the suffering that will come your way or that you're experiencing right now. God has granted you the power to overcome this suffering, to walk through this suffering. In other words, God has implanted in the hearts of every believer the desire for goodness and the work that is inspired by faith and is given to believers with His power. God has empowered us to stand up in the midst of trial. And look at what this vindication looks like in verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in Him. We will bring glory to Christ 
in our perseverance. That is not a, a very shocking thing, right? When we stand up in the midst of suffering, we actually speak for our Savior. But notice what the text says. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and your name, you, will be glorified in Him. So, Paul goes one step further. That we will glorify Christ in our perseverance, but Christ will actually glorify us in our perseverance. You in Him. That, that we will be glorified in Christ. Think about this. That your works will glorify the King of Kings. Mike Jewell said this morning that it would have been great to encourage the Apostle Paul. But this is something even greater. That we will glorify the King of Kings and He will glorify us because of our works. And all of this is empowered by the grace that Paul talks about in verse 12 that comes from God the Father. Let me give you four points of application in closing. Number one, believer, you will suffer. You will suffer. Because of your faith, you may be rejected by people in your community or at your job or even in your own family. But God will not reject you. Your job is to stand up in the midst of that suffering to persevere. God will count you worthy of His kingdom when He sees you stand up in suffering. Number two, believer, you will be vindicated. You will suffer, but you will be vindicated. So don't despair. When, when you see things backwards, that the wicked are receiving glory now and we're suffering, don't despair because God has not forgotten you, but rather suffering is a sign that God's judgments are right. It's not a sign that God has abandoned you. All of your sufferings are under His control and our hope has to stay in Him just like Psalm 44 and Psalm 89. And so you can be sure that you will be vindicated and that the afflictors will be afflicted. They will suffer for what they have done. Number three, there's only one place to find refuge from Christ's final judgment. There's only one place to find refuge. And that is in Christ. It is in the cross. It's by accepting that judgment that already came on Christ. So, one theologian gives a great illustration of this. He writes that pioneers of the Great Plains protected their settlements from oncoming prairie fires. You know how? By burning the grass just outside of their own home. And once that grass was burned, once that weed or whatever it was was burned right around their home, the fire couldn't get to their home because there's nothing to burn. And he says, similarly, the Scriptures warn that the cross is the only safe place from which we can be protected from the fiery judgment that's coming upon all the world. Because it's the one place that God's judgment has already been. We can't stop the fire. We can't stop the judgment. We can only be protected from it. And the only place of protection is in the judgment that was already taken in our place through Christ. Number four, perseverance in mysterious suffering reveals genuine believers. Perseverance in the midst of 
mysterious suffering reveals genuine believers. And so this is a call to all of us. Will the real Christians please stand up in this world? Do you want to have assurance of your salvation? Do you want to see as best as we can tell who the real Christians are in this world? Well, one thing we know is that mysterious suffering drives out nominal Christianity. Unexplained, unjust suffering drives out nominal Christians. When I say nominal Christians, I just mean by name only. People who call themselves Christians. It actually drives them away from God and shows them to be what they really are, not really Christians. And that's why in the parable of the soils, what drives people away who initially showed some apparent signs of life is actually suffering. Listen to our Lord when He's given the explanation in Mark chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. 16 through 19, excuse me. Remember, the Word had been sown and it didn't take root. The first soil was cast along the roadside, but it wasn't deep enough, and so the birds came by and ate it up. And Jesus said, that's like Satan taking away the Word. It never took any root in the person's heart. And then here's how He explains the second and third soil. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on rocky places who, when they hear the Word, immediately receive it with joy. And yet they have no root, no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. And then notice what drives them away. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who heard the Word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the Word and it becomes unfruitful. unjust, mysterious, unexplained suffering drives out nominal Christians, doesn't it? And so when we receive it, it helps us, it helps to show that there is a real work of God within us because only Christians can stand up in the midst of unexplained suffering. Only Christians can see suffering as good. Only Christians can understand that God has it all under control and that His eternal blessings will more than compensate for the suffering that you and I are facing on behalf of Him. And so Christians, keep on standing in the midst of great trial and persecution. It will be the sign that God has really saved you and that you will enter the kingdom. So whatever you're facing now, God has not abandoned you, but suffering has begun with the household of God. But it won't be that way forever, will it? God will make everything right. This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment that you now suffer and that they now receive glory. But one day, you will receive the glory alongside of Christ and they will receive the suffering. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at Your Word.
And we are sorrowful for the way that we often look at life. We sometimes live as if the comforts of this world are all that there is to live for. We sometimes live as if we're not in a battle for spiritual things. We sometimes live as if we ought to be carried to the clouds and flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas. And yet, it's an encouragement for us to hear from Your Word and to know that suffering is good and best for us because it strengthens us, it reveals what's really in our hearts. And while we don't wish that upon ourselves or about it, upon anyone else, we do see Your hand on, in it and we with Peter can rejoice in our suffering and recognize that it is Your way of bringing about the most limited of judgment that could come upon us. Really, Christ took all of our judgment. He took all of our punishment upon Himself. But one of the ways that You will bring glory to Yourself and You will, you will honor us in the final day is by vindicating us because of our suffering. And Lord, we see people now and then who show signs of life but then have persecution come and they quickly fall away. And we, we don't want to be like that. We want to stand firm all the way until the end. So give us the strength to do so. Help us to be marked by growing faith. And we know that that can only come because You've done a work in us and that You are doing a work in us. So please continue to do so. Continue to pursue us. Don't abandon us. Always be with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.